0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Unstuck with Hypnopunk Transformation with Edge. Today's podcast is entitled Addictions 2. This is Addictions the sequel, some updated uh, studies and research and ways that I look at addictions at this current recording time. There's going to be a lot of research here today, some really, really good, solid scientific principles. Before before I get into that, I'd like to thank uh, any and everyone that has listened to the podcast, liked it, shared it, commented on it, whether that be on iTunes, Google Play or YouTube. I put these things out here for you for free to listen to as I do with all my articles and videos absolutely free of charge. Don't ask you for a dime of them. All I ask is if you enjoy them, share them, tell people about them. Let's grow, grow this uh, revolution right here and just leave reviews, whether that be on iTunes, leave a five-star review and a few comments, Google Play or share, like them and leave a comment on YouTube because that makes me want to put more of these out there um, to help educate you and help to transform your life also for any of you that do make a five-star review on uh itunes and some comments or wherever you listen to this podcast take a snapshot send me an email at mail mail at leuconosis l-u-k-e-n-o-s-i-s dot com and with a snapshot and let me know and i will give you a 30-minute unstuck power session with me over the telephone or I've escaped. This is not a hypnosis session. This is not a therapy session. It's just 30 minutes where you get me, where I help for you to give you some strategies, brainstorm some strategies to help you become unstuck in a certain area of your life so you get more freedom and happiness. That being said, back on with the show. Now, I did an addiction podcast and I'm guessing it was about 10 or 11 uh, it was numbered on the podcast archives if you want to check it and at that current time that was my beliefs and my understanding and the way that I treated and look at addiction some of it's very similar and some of it's going to change so I'm going to share with you my new followings and my new understandings with it. Um, a lot of it has come through training that I've done with Melissa Tears recently in an addiction protocol, becoming certified with that. Uh, Kevin Lay of siteap fame and his addiction classes. Of uh, course I did and some, some other personal research as well. So I'm going to borrow from both of those people, their studies, stuff that I tend to believe and do. So it's going to be a mishmash of all of that and current research. So, basically, basically, how I now think of an addiction is it's basically a habit in the brain that creates a network of associations, as some neuroscientists like to say, the cells that fire together, wire together. And what this means for an addiction is that each time you do a drug, you drink the drink or engage in that addictive activity you're strengthening those connections athletes will have thicker and denser neurons that are associated with the muscles used for their sport london cab drivers where i'm from have thicker neurons in the area of their brain associated with navigations and addicts have more robust area devoted to the patterned response The more we reinforce the pattern, the thicker and stronger the cluster of neurons become. And as this happens, it becomes much more difficult to consciously control them. But new research in neuroscience tells us that the brain is malleable and capable of changing even the most ingrained patterns. So each time you stop that craving, urge or that habitual feeling that led you to them, you're actually learning To rewire the brain, and it's far easier to do than most of us think. Now, there's basically three levels of doing this. First of all, when I work with people, I arm them with understanding how habits are formed, which we're going to do with you today, and changed in the brain, and then give them multiple different ways to stop those cravings, and more importantly, the emotions that lead to them, and also learn about the research that concludes that the best way to change the habit is to interrupt it and connect the neurons to those outside networks. So the techniques will offer relief from the cravings while systematically rewiring your brain. The second level of protocols work to change the emotional impact of past traumas, associations, negative beliefs and emotions that many addicts carry around. These techniques are based on the research of memory reconsideration and fact than the fact that we can change significantly the power of implicit, memory, implicit memories, which then makes it easier to heal and move on. And how people, how we encode and install these positive beliefs and motivations inside people. And the third level is about personal power. Teaching addicts to develop alternative strategies to reward. Based on the work around willpower and meaning making, I help them cultivate a new values hierarchy, fostering a sense of community, but very different from codependent communities uh, like AA and NA. And purpose by having addicts connect to groups and individuals who are actually empowered that no longer do that negative process. Recent studies now in neuroscience have actually shown us that the best way to stop a addiction, a pattern, is to actually consistently interrupt it and start to change the emotions that led to it. Research indicates the best way to change a habit is to interrupt it and connect the neurons to the outside network of neurons. So the techniques that we're going to offer here for cravings while simultaneously help to rewire the habit. Now I'm going to give you some points here point one Bruce Alexander the view from the Rat Pack which was a study and I believe a book in 2010. Rat Pack was a study into drug addiction conducted in the late 1970s and published in 1981 by Canadian psychologist Bruce Alexander at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada. I'm probably going to garble some of these names later on in these studies, but I have them here to give you if you would like to research. Uh, just a heads up. And Alexander's hypothesis was that drugs do not cause addiction. And that the apparent addiction to opiate drugs commonly observed in laboratory rats to expose to them is attributable to their living conditions and not any addictive property in the drug itself i'm not sure if you're familiar with this but there was a study that was done with rats in a cage and they in the rats uh, water bottle they put in some opiates i think it was cocaine infused opiate water And the, I believe the rats would would be drinking this water, drinking this water, drinking this water with the opiates in and would become more and more strung out. But what they found, it wasn't actually the drug that was stringing these rats out. It was uh, a small inclined, sorry, a small defined area in the cage where there was no toys, there was nothing to do. There was essentially a lockdown most of the time. They were not stimulated by anything else and it was one at a time and my understanding was what when they took the rat out of the cage put him in an environment that was a far bigger cage with things to play on like wheels and so forth and other rats and they just changed um the water to be normal water basically these rats and their biology self-corrected they didn't go through days and weeks and months and years of relapse just a mere change in the environment with other rats with things to play with more open spaces actually started to change the biology of these rats proven in rats that to merely change the environment they were in from one that was quite downtrodden and negative to an environment that was quite positive that change changed them changed their very biology Now, these following points are from the substance dependent recovery rates with and without treatment taken from the Clean Slate Addiction site, which is www.thecleanslate.org. Most alcoholics recover without treatment and they moderate too. Information presented below is an analysis of data taken from 2001 to 2002, the National the Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions, or the NESARC for short. This data is relevant because it comes from a survey representative of the US population as a whole. Unlike many addiction studies which only survey people who go through drug and alcohol addiction treatment protocols, Those studies often find that people relapse quickly without continued treatment, leading to the erroneous assumption that addicts can't quit without treatment, or that the addiction is a chronic disease, and especially that abstinence is necessary and that successful moderation is rarely attained but what we find when we broaden our scope like in this study is the majority of people with substance dependence as defined in the APA's DSM volume 4 actually quit on their own without any sort of 12-step protocol. Point number one most people cease to be substance dependent the fact is that any given time Of the percentage of people who would be classified as dependent in a time prior to the past year, only 25% of them are still dependent. This leaves the other 75% as no longer dependent. This one fact proved by this study offers a lot of hope for those with substance use problems. The odds are that you're three times more likely to end your addiction than continue your addiction. Point number two, you have a better chance of ending your addiction if you are never exposed to treatment programs like a 12-step program. The recovery culture claims you cannot end your addiction without treatment or a 12-step meeting. But the facts show that the higher percentage of people end their dependence without ever getting this kind of help. Point number three, Long-term success is more likely without treatment. And I'm defining treatment by not doing some change work sessions, but actually 12-step programs or week long plus month long uh, overpriced rehab programs. Point number three, long-term success is more likely without treatment. In a study, 64.9% of people who had received treatment and whose addiction started sometimes in the past five years are still dependent the interesting thing about this is that the number is exactly the same for the untreated individual whose addiction began in the past five years so in the early years there is no difference in outcome whether you get treatment or not but if you want a life of recovery maybe you should stay in treatment point number four Moderate use is a possible and probable outcome for a resolution of substance dependence. Now, this is going something that probably in the last podcast and stuff that I've had a belief for for a long term, and the belief is you need to come off come off the drug, obviously under supervision of a doctor, um, but you need to come off of it and never go on it again once you're off of it, whether you win yourself off or not, because if if it's if it's there, if it's dangled in front of you, you you become addicted um, again. So this is something that's pretty much changed over the last six months since I've been doing these these podcasts. And it is possible to do that drug in moderation. Now, I'm not suggesting that you do it. I'm not saying you should do it. Um, It's not how I live my life, but I'm also not here to judge you or how you live your life. It is possible to moderate these things. I'm going to give you the study in a moment. So oftentimes when I get a client that comes in, I ask them, well, you know, if they're smoking too much or if they're drinking too much or drugging too much, i ask them, well, listen, do you want to stop completely or do you just want to do it in moderation? A high percentage want to stop completely, which is great, which is my old model. And some say, well, you know what, I just like to have the occasional drink or the occasional cigarette or the occasional what have you which which they can do, because the, here's the way I look at it. If you imagine a pendulum, yes, I'm a hypnotist, I'm giving you a metaphor of a pendulum. If you imagine the pendulum swung one way for a long time, which is you're drugging, you're drinking in some form or fashion, way too much that it's making you uh, unhappy. Then allowing that pendulum to swing completely the other way for a little bit, which is abstaining from that drug, that narcotic, in order to get that balance in between where you could occasionally enjoy a drink here or there and what you do, it is possible, this study shows us. Um, but my belief in, in working with people with addiction over twenty two years is sometimes if you've been one way with that with that addiction with that problem that pendulum swung one way it does need to swing the other way for a little bit in order for you to get more calibration. Um, but it is possible to use in moderation. I'm not suggesting that you do, but it is possible. And when my clients come to me, I ask them, do you want to stop completely or just moderate this because it's their life, not mine. And I'm in the job of helping deliver the results they want, not results that I necessarily want for them. So back to the research, it's important to realize since recovery culture doesn't allow for moderation as a success story, they believe that It's abstinent or nothing and in fact they actually teach people that once they've been substance dependent a single drink will rapidly escalate them back into a full-blown substance dependence. The data in this study show that this clearly isn't the case. An example of this uh, from my own clinical work is I'd occasionally have a client that would come in and smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, approximately uh, 50 cigarettes. And they would come in um, about a month later for a follow-up session and they'd come in and they're like, Luke, Luke, I fouled. I'm like, okay, how many cigarettes are you smoking? And bear in mind, as I said, they're on two packs a day, 50 cigarettes approximately a day. They're like, well, I've smoked um, two cigarettes in the last month. I'm like you fouled. So so let me get this right. In, In an average month of 30 days, you would in the past smoke 1500 cigarettes a month. So you didn't smoke 1500 cigarettes a month. You smoked one and then you didn't smoke anymore. Because you realized how stupid it was. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, you were successful. So stop fucking beating yourself up and realize you went from 1500 to one. And that one didn't gradually turn into 1500 because you just stopped. You realize, hey, you know what? I don't really want it, so I don't really need it. It is possible to do that. And that's a new thing for me that I've learned and actually put into my practice. These following stats are from the truth about addiction and recovery. Currently, it is estimated that 30% of adult Americans, uh, more than 40 million, are former smokers. The Office on Smoking and Health reports that 45% of all Americans and 60% of college graduates who have ever smoked no longer do so. What's more, 90% of those who have stopped have done it on their own Um, and this is from a research study or book a retrospective study on successful quitters paper presented at the annual meeting of the american psychological association oh they love me in toronto canada where i'm living uh, in august 1978 the year before i was born sociologist dan wardoff who interviewed hundreds of un treated ex-addicts for his 1986 book Pathways from Heroin Addiction Recovery Without Treatment describes how 40% of his subjects naturally outgrew heroin addiction as a normal part of their development with almost no special effects on their part. This group felt that their addiction had run its course and that it was time to go on to do something else and have a more meaningful life that's by D ward off natural recovery from opiate addiction some social psychological processes of untreated recovery and that's the journal of drug issues 13 in 1983 So, what does that tell us? It tells us that a lot of people just stop one day. And we've all had things that we've stopped in our life. Perhaps when you were a youngster like me, you played with action figures. Maybe it was Barbie dolls. I didn't smoke, I didn't play part the barbie dolls or well, was that one time that i married one of my wrestling figures to my sister's barbie doll but that's another story for another time but i used to play with he-man figures and wrestling figures when i was 8 9 10 11 hey even 12 but as i grew older they got replaced by video games and girls i no longer play with figures it wasn't a hard transition it just happened because i outgrew it i'm sure there's things that you've outgrown in your life when I was young, I used to dress in a certain way. I used to have a certain style as a young man. As a teenager, I no longer dressed that way anymore. It wasn't a big battle. I just outgrew it. When I was young, I'm sure you've had clothes that you just outgrew. It's like, I don't have that style anymore. It was cool at the time, but now I'm, I've grown up. I, I don't wear clothes like that. Or perhaps there was a the type of music you listened to. Uh, when I was young, there was a the type of music I used to listen to. I used to listen to Kiss. I used to enjoy the music of Kiss as I grew up and matured and my t- taste got better. I no longer listen to um, KISS with the same reverence as I used to do. I kind of outgrew it and it wasn't a big battle. It wasn't a conscious thing. It was just I grew up. And what this study is saying is 60% of people do this when it comes to drugs. The fact is frequent cited that on a regular basis, patients in hospitals are recovering Excuse me, are receiving much stronger dosages of opiates than heroin addicts on the street, and almost never become addicted. Dr. Mitchell Marks of the National Institute of Health reported on 11,000 people who were treated with narcotics for cancer or after surgery. The research indicates that among these 11,000 people, there was one case of serious addiction—one hundredth of one percent and three other questionable cases that were noted Dr. Max concludes that the real reason people who are given narcotics for medical reason do not become addicted to them is they do not take the part do not take the drug for euphoria or for escape they do not think of themselves as drug addicts and indignantly, indignantly reject the label as it suggested to them uh, this is by Dr. Mitchell Marks, interviewed on National Public Radio's Morning Edition, May 4th, 1989. And quoted the addiction addiction rare in patients treated with narcotics, which is a, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, 302, uh, in 1980. So isn't it interesting when, when we regard... Reject the label of addict when we're getting the same drug, yet it's for a medical reason, i.e. these cancer patients, that the likelihood of becoming addicted in 11,000 cases was one and three questionable. Not even one percent, not even half of one percent of people. If it was truly addicted, then these 11,000 people would have consistently needed to have that opiate in their life, but they didn't. And I'm not just making this stuff up, I have it in front of me. You can research it. New advances in the field of neuroscience and neuroanatomy are occurring at a lightning speed and challenge and even contradict this previously held assumption. Most of this research centers on the concept of neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to reconstruct itself by forming new neuroconnections due to the environment, behavior, or neutral stimulation. Essentially, the disease model views addiction as simply a disease of neuroplasticity for a one-sided view at best. Neuroscience is a young discipline and the distinctions between brain development and brain pathways remain mucky and muddy at best. Idea terrain for drawing arbitrary lines in the sand. For example, the brain changes observed in long-term substance abusers are nearly identical to those seen in people struggling with obesity, porn aficionados, gambling, internet addicts, compulsive shoppers and simply those involved in any intense romantic relationship. They involve over-activation of a part of the brain that directs goal pursuit the and i'm going to mispronounce this the stratum s-t-r-i-a-t-u-m in response to cues predicting their preferred rewards and long-term desensitization in response to rewards more generally Uh, this is from um the brain that changes itself stories of personal triumph from the frontiers of brain science it was published in 2007 new york uh viking press so what does this tell us? It tells us that literally our brain is being recreated every moment of every day. One thing for sure, the literally 5 billion plus cells that you have in your body one year from now, they will all be gone. They will be dead and you'll have 5 billion other cells that have been respawned in their place. You are not the same person now, even though you may look similar that you then, than you were f- uh, a year ago. All your cells have died and been respawned. And here are a few thoughts from Mark Lewis's excellent book, The Biology of Desire, that describes brilliantly what happens with addiction and why addiction is not a disease. So i'm quoting the book here bad habits self-organize like any other habits bad habits like addiction grow more deeply and often more quickly than other bad habits because they result from feedback fueled by intense desire and because they crowd out the availability or appeal of alternative pursuits but they are still fundamentally habits habits of thinking feeling and acting the brain continues to shape itself with each repeat of the addictive experience until the addictive habit converges with other habits lodged within one's own personality but the networks become more robust and more efficient with repetition and the learning gets deeper think of a dozen little roads being replaced by several main roads and maybe eventually a freeway this formula for learning is addiction your first snort of cocaine probably produced a novel firing pattern if not, you'd have tried a second snort and found another dealer. Then each time you, not you, of course I'm not talking about you, but each time you snorted about snorted coke, more synaptics were changed, reinforcing this firing pattern, this cocaine configuration. This configuration would soon connect to regions all over your brain. These include part of the cortex, the perception perceptual cortex in charge of seeing and hearing the prefrontal cortex in charge of thinking and planning and the motor regions in charge of putting those plans into action but they also include the limbic regions involved in feeling and motives the amygdala and hippocampus campus, as well as the stratum, yes I'm mispronouncing that, which is not usually defined as limbic per se, but close enough, so it's more or less the whole brain. The parts involved in thought and perception, and the parts dedicated to feelings and instincts, they get included in the cocaine network, which is why thoughts, feelings and action patterns change and crystallise together again this is taken from the biology of desire why addiction is not a disease by mark lewis there's also a strong a strong correlation between early childhood trauma and adversity or neurocognitive implications in 1995 physicians vincent Felitti and robert anda launched a large-scale epistemological study that probed the children and child and adolescent histories of 17,000 subjects, comparing their childhood experiences to their later adult health records. The results were shocking. Nearly two thirds of the individual that had encountered one or more adverse child experiences or ACEs from this point forward, a term that both of these uh Felitti and Ander coined to encompass the chronic, unpredictable, and stress inducing events that some children face. These included grown up with depressed or an alcoholic parent, losing a parent to divorce or other causes, or Enduring chronic humiliation, emotional neglect, sexual or physical abuse. These forms of emotional trauma went beyond the typical everyday challenges of growing up. The ACE study indicates that experienced chronic and. Un- unpredictable toxic stress in childhood predisposes us to a constellation of cr- of chronic conditions in adulthood but why today in labs across the country neuroscientists are peering into the once indiscutable brain body connection and breaking down on a biological level exactly how the stress we face and when we're younger catches up to us when we're adult altering our bodies ourselves and even our dna and what they found may surprise you number one epigenetic shifts when we're thrust in over and over again into stressful inducing situations during during childhood or adolescence our physiological stress response it shift into overdrive and we lose the ability to respond appropriately and effectively to future stressors. This happens due to a process known as gene and I'm not even going to try to pronounce this, um, M-E-T-H-Y-L-A-T-I-O-N, in which small chemical markers or methyl groups adhere to the genes involved in regulating the stress response and prevent these genes from doing their jobs. As the function of these genes become altered, the stress response becomes reset on a high for life, promoting inflammation and disease. Two size and shape of the brain. Scientists have found that when we're developing our brain, it chronically, if it's chronically stressed, it releases a hormone that actually shrinks the size of the hippocampus, an area of the brain responsible for processing emotions and memory and managing steps, and man, memory and managing stress. Three neurological pruning. When a child faces unpredictable chronic stress or adverse childhood experiences. Um, Microglial cells can get really worked up and crank out neurochemicals that lead to a neuroinflammation and the application of the pruning process. Four, telomeres. Early childhood trauma can make children seem older, emotionally speaking, than their peers. Now, researchers have discarded discovered that adverse child experiences may prematurely old children on a cellular level as well. Adults who have faced early trauma show greater erosion in what are known as the telomeres. These are the protective caps that sit on the end of DNA strands like the caps on shoelaces to keep the genome healthy and intact. 5. Default Mode Network Inside each of our brains is a network of neurocircuitry known as the default mode network, which unites areas of the brain associated with memory and thought integration. Kids who faced early traumas have less connectivity into the default mode network, even decades after the trauma has occurred, so they may have trouble reacting appropriately to the world around them. 6. Brain-body pathway. For a child who's experienced adversity, the relationship between mental and physical suffering is strong. The inflammatory chemicals that flood a child's body when she's chronically stressed aren't confined to the body alone and they're shuttled literally from head to toe. 7. Brain connectivity. Children in teens who'd experienced Chronic childhood adversity showed weaker neuroconnections between the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. Traumatic memories, early childhood adversity, and post-traumatic stress—a neuropsychotherapy reconsideration approach. Persistent unwanted memories are believed to be the key attributes. Excuse me, the uh, the key contributors to drug addiction and the chronic relapse problem over the lifetime of an adult. However, contrary to the long-held idea that memories are static and fixed, new studies in the last decade have showed that memories are instead quite dynamic and malleable. When a memory is retrieved, reactivated, it becomes liable for a period of time with new information merging and modifying the existing representation before it is again reconsiderated to maintain long-term memory. In the light of this discovery, memory is now viewed as being largely reconstructive rather than simply replaying stored information. Now, if you'd like a study or you would like the citation of these studies, then please shoot me an email at mail at lukenosis.com. I am taking them from Melissa Tears and her addiction course that I did, and she compiled um, all of this. Now another interesting thing about memory con- reconsideration research in substance abuse population. Once the most challenging aspects of drug addiction is the craving and relapse cycle that can occur for many years. The persistence of drug seeking and drug taking behavior suggests that drug associated learning and memory processes contribe significantly to the relapse. This is because repeated drug-taking behavior engages neurocircuitry involved in learning and memory of drug-related information. With each drug use, drug-related memories are reactivated, retrieved, and are believed to be reconsiderated to maintain and thereby strengthen their circuits. These are encouraging new studies that show even well-established long-term memories may be susceptible to disrupt, disruption by interfering with reconsideration during memory retrieval. These findings indicate promise for using this approach as a therapy for disrupt, disrupting the long-term lasting effects of memories that often trigger relapses in the cycle of addiction. Now, this has been a long podcast and I've gone over So our next podcast, which comes out same hypnopunk time, same hypnopunk place, same hypnopunk channel, Um, Next week will be five ways to immediately halt interrupt your addiction. Now, whether that be cigarettes, whether that be alcohol, whether that be chocolate, however you want to label the addiction, again, it's not a term that I use or believe in. It's merely a fact that most people searching for this will put their word into Google because hopefully you've seen that I see it very, very differently. It's just a stupid negative pattern that we run. I'm going to show you five ways that whatever your addiction be, whether that be chocolate cake, cigarettes, porn, gambling, or heroin, how you can interrupt these patterns and start to change actually the shape of your brain and what happens there with neuroplasticity that's coming next time so please if you would like uh, a fact sheet on five ways to pull yourself out of addiction shoot me an email at mal m-a-i-l at lukenosis l u k e n o s i s dot com and i will shoot that over to you as always i have been hypnopunk this has been another episode of unstuck with hypnopunk always believe. Whoa!